Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Jeff, and I serve as one of the pastors here at the Hallows Church. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Thank you for also kind of bearing with us here as we work around uh, some of the things that are going on in this space. What's going on is uh, that King's High School is putting on a, a theater production of uh, Elf Jr., I think is the name of it. And so that's why I'm standing up higher than usual, and that's why we don't have our middle screen here. And that's why we have these sets around us as well. So they'll be putting on this production, I believe, uh, beginning the week after next. So next week, I think, will be the last Sunday that we'll be kind of dealing with this. The Sunday after that, I wanted to remind you, is uh, Sunday, December 10th, and we will not be gathering in this space on that day because they'll be having a matinee production, a matinee show, showing of that, uh, of that play. And so we're encouraging everybody up here to, to uh, uh, attend one of our other locations, our other expressions, either in West Seattle at 10.45 a.m. or in Fremont at 5 p.m. And we'll be reminding you of that so nobody shows up here on that Sunday and uh, is surprised by the fact that nobody's here. Um, so uh, keep that in mind in the coming weeks. Uh, well, last week, Pastor Andrew led us in a time of teaching on the parable of the prodigal son, or perhaps more accurate, accurately, the parable of the two lost sons, as we saw. There were two sons in that story, after all, and both were lost in their own unique ways, trying to find their way home in a fallen world, and that was last Sunday. And then the next week, next Sunday, we're going to begin an Advent series that will run through the end of December. And we're going to be focused uh, in that series on some key biblical passages that really uh, get after why Jesus took on flesh and why Jesus came for us in the way that he did. And we have some Advent resources actually for you in this regard on the back table, table, and I'd like to encourage you to take one of those with you. It's an Advent daily devotional for the month of December that has some passages in there, and with each passage it has... Uh, some discussion, uh, some questions to, to reflect on and to perhaps dialogue over if you're doing this devotional with somebody else. But this week, I'd like to explore another parable told by Jesus, the parable of the Good Samaritan that you heard read just a couple of moments ago by Bryant. And like last week's passage, this passage, this parable is quite famous too. And also like last week's parable, there's there's much more going on beneath the surface in this story than, than, may, uh, than one might realize at first glance. And so let's dive right in and get after this together this morning. If you're not already there, head over to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, if you'd like to track along with me. And we'll be exploring this passage this morning under three headings. The provocation of Jesus, the parable that was told by Jesus, and the real purpose of the parable for you and I today. First, the provocation. This passage begins in verse 25 at a time when Jesus was teaching a large crowd, as he often did. And we're told that a person in the crowd, a lawyer, we're told, posed a question to Jesus. Now, this lawyer that we'll be talking about this morning, first of all, he was not the type of lawyer you may be thinking of. This guy would have been an expert in the law, but he would have been an expert in, in the Mosaic law, in, in God's law, God's law that was given to God's people in the first five books of the Old Testament. And this, these first five books of the Old Testament are referred to as the Pentateuch. And so this lawyer who stood up, he was a religious scholar of sorts. He, he really knew his Bible well. 
And we see some interesting things here, not only about what this lawyer asked, but also in how he asked and in why he asked. In verse 25, the lawyer stood up to address Jesus and to ask his question. And most typically, standing up in this sort of way in that time and in that sort of setting, it was a sign of honor and respect. But we see immediately in this case and with this lawyer that he did not stand up in order to show respect to Jesus. Rather, the verse is quite explicit in telling us that this guy stood up, in fact, to test Jesus. It says he stood up to put Jesus to the test in verse 25. Now, you might ask, why would he want to do that? And the answer to that, you see, was that Jesus' popularity was really taking off. He was, he was gaining quite a following, and he was seen as somewhat of a threat in various ways to the, to the religious establishment and to the religious leaders of that day. In fact, some of the things that he said and did led many Jewish leaders to think that, to think that Jesus had a very low regard for for the law and for the scriptures. And one of the reasons for this is that Jesus often could be found to be uh, hanging out with people who were very far from God. Jesus was a friend to sinners. He spent much time with them and he socialized with them often. He was always welcoming and eating with, with the broken and with the marginalized and with the outcasts of society. And so many Jewish leaders were suspicious of Jesus in fact, they wanted to expose him as someone who did not respect the importance of obeying God's laws. And so the religious leaders of the day, like this lawyer, they were, they were often gunning for Jesus. They were often doing whatever they could to kind of dig up dirt on him that they might uh, use against him to kind of rein him in and, and to hopefully bring him down. And so when the lawyer stood up to ask his question in verse 25, let's be clear that it was not because he was looking for answers. He raised this question because he was hoping to trap Jesus. He was hoping that he might provoke Jesus to say something that he might later regret. And the lawyer's question that he posed to Jesus on that day, it was this. He said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now remember, the lawyer is testing Jesus here. He's trying to trap Jesus. He's hoping that Jesus might expose his, his lax attitude toward the law by saying something like, oh, oh you're fine, just, just follow me, live your life how you want. God accepts everyone. But Jesus, I think, knew exactly what this guy was up to. He was used to this sort of thing. And as he often did, Jesus answers this question posed to him by the lawyer, not with an answer, but with, but with a question of his own. Rather than answer the question directly, he turns the table on the lawyer. Jesus turns the table on this lawyer by asking a question of his own. In verse 26, Jesus said to the lawyer, he said, well, what is, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus is saying to the lawyer, you are the expert, right? You are the scholar. You know the scriptures well. What do you think? You tell me. And quite frankly, this was not a hard question that was being asked. In fact, Jesus kind of teed it up for this guy on, on purpose, I think, as we'll see later. This was a pretty standard question, in fact, which had a pretty standard and accepted biblical answer among the Jewish people of that day. You see, over time, those who studied the scriptures had kind of distilled down the hundreds of, 
of laws from the Old Testament to two primary principles. And in verse 27, that's exactly how the lawyer answered the question by, by reciting these two principles. In verse 27, the lawyer answered Jesus' question and answered his own question really too by saying this. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Love God above all else and love your neighbor as, as much as yourself. In the New Testament, you actually find Jesus summarizing the law in this very same way. For example, in Mark chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus says, he says, the first and greatest commandment is to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, he says. And then he says, the second great commandment is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 40, he says, on these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. And so Jesus would summarize the law using the very same language that this lawyer had just used. But as we're going to see later, there's an important distinction between what the two are saying. You see, whereas the lawyer saw these two principles as the path to receiving eternal life, Jesus sees these two principles, in a sense, as a sign that a person has already received it. One approach says, I love God and I love my neighbor so that God will accept me. While the other says, I love God and I love my neighbor because he already does. And we'll circle back to that idea in a bit. But for now, this lawyer, he answered his own question, really, in the way that the scriptures uh, to him and to others in that day seemed to, to answer the question. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself and you will inherit eternal life. And then in verse 28, Jesus says, he says this, he says, you have answered correctly. Do this. Do this, and you will live. Just do what you have said, and you will be fine. First, Jesus turned the table on this guy. Now we're going to see Jesus kind of turning up the heat. Jesus first threw out this softball of a question to the lawyer, and the lawyer answered the question, very much in the way Jesus, I think, expected him to answer the question. But Jesus was only getting started here. In fact, Jesus is really setting this guy up is what he's doing. In fact, where the lawyer thought he was going to put Jesus to the test, and where the lawyer thought he was going to set this sort of trap for Jesus, we actually see Jesus beginning to set a trap of his own in verse 28. And it's interesting with Jesus to see him operate in this way. He's going to do it here. He does it elsewhere. My guess is he's done it in your own life too at times. At times, Jesus and his words, they can kind of back us into a corner. They can kind of force us to consider things we perhaps hadn't considered or didn't want to consider. But unlike the lawyer and his uh, misguided motives, when Jesus goes about setting his traps, his traps are motivated out of love. He sets traps at times to, to get people thinking and to chip away at, at false foundations and false beliefs. And he does so out of love. And that's exactly what we'll see Jesus doing here. He wants to stretch this lawyer's thinking. 
He wants to kind of fracture this lawyer's worldview. And if we approach this thoughtfully, we'll see that he wants to do the very same with us, too. You see, the premise of this lawyer's life was that if he wanted to be right with God, then it was up to him. It was up to him and what he did. It was, it was up to him to, to measure up and, and to do enough and, and to be enough. After all, remember his question in verse 25, he said, what must I do? What must I do, he said, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, do that. He said, you got it right. Just do what you have said. Now let's talk about this for a moment. Two, two principles, right? Principle number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This means that you are to give God what God has given to you. And that is everything. It means you are to love God with 100% of your thoughts, with 100% of your attention, 100% of the time. Nothing comes first. Nothing comes before him. Nothing absorbs you. Nothing uh, delights you more than he does. Principle number two, love your neighbor as yourself. This means you are to love and serve and meet the needs of people around you with as much energy with as much enthusiasm as you meet your own, with as much time, with as much thought, with as many resources as you would do for yourself. When somebody else gets something you really wanted, that job, that promotion, that new house, that new relationship, you are to be as happy for them as you would be if you yourself had received those things. Two principles, love God fully, Love your neighbor like yourself. Jesus says to the lawyer and to us, that's it. Do that and you'll be fine. That's the kind of love that, that God's law demands of you. That's the kind of life you should be living and the kind of life you were designed to be living. And do you feel the force of that? Do you feel the weight of that? Do you see the problem in that? Because there's a big problem in that, and that is that nobody actually does that. Nobody actually loves like that. Jesus is trapping the lawyer here. He's backing him into a corner. He's, he's chipping away at this guy's foundation. He's trying to show the lawyer that this lawyer falls far short of the very standard that he had just articulated. Here's a man who comes and says, I want to inherit eternal life. And the first thing Jesus suggests to him is that real love cannot even start until you see that you're actually not that loving at all, at least not according to the standards uh, set forth by the law. Jesus often starts working in a person's heart by exposing that person's own inadequacies to them. Have you ever sensed that in your own life? He begins working in your heart by showing you that you can never and will never on your own efforts and on your own performance hope to make yourself acceptable to God. In fact, a new heart within us and a new type of love within us as Christians can never begin to blossom in our lives until we can acknowledge that we don't even come close to that standard and that we are in desperate need of God's grace. But the lawyer, he is not ready to concede that. Instead, the lawyer starts to maneuver a bit here. He wants to talk about some definition of terms. Verse 29 says, But the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, 
said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And that's really the story of the human condition right there in a way. Ever since the fall in Genesis uh, chapter 3, you and I trying to justify ourselves, trying to whittle down God's word and God's commands to something that seems more manageable and more uh, reasonable to us. In asking this question, the lawyer is saying, okay, look, Jesus, let's be reasonable here. There must be some way to explain these principles and these laws and to define these terms in ways that make it possible to actually obey them, right? Surely there must be limits, and surely I'm meeting those limits. I mean, look at me. Look at my life. I'm a good person. I'm a religious person. I'm better than most. I treat others well. I give to charity. I I helped that guy out last week. When the lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, what he was really asking is, what's the bare minimum? Who do I really need to love like that? Because, Because it can't mean everyone, can it? Let's be reasonable here. And this time, Jesus responds to his questioner, not with another question, but with a story. Jesus tells a parable in verses 30 to 35 in response to this question from the lawyer. And as we step into this parable, we're introduced to this man, this this Jewish man traveling from Jerusalem, it says, and it says he was going down to, to Jericho. And interestingly, that description is quite accurate in a very literal sense. You see, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was and is a twisting and turning mountain road that drops nearly 3,000 feet in elevation over its 17-mile length. And so the road in this story that Jesus told was a real road, and in fact, it was a very real and dangerous road in that time. It was known for its danger. And the road was dangerous in large part because of the types of people that could be found dwelling in the caves and the canyons through which that road traveled. The cultural equivalent today might be you or I walking through a particularly rough area of the city in the middle of the night, alone and uncertain of who we might run across or or what might go down. In fact, a road to Jericho received the nickname, the Way of Blood or the Path of Blood, because of its reputation, because of the dangerous situations that travelers sometimes would encounter on that road. And it seems that's exactly what happened to this man in the parable. We're told this guy was robbed, he was stripped naked, he was beaten, and he was left there on the road half dead, essentially bleeding out. But fortunately, fortunately, there were some other travelers on this road who came upon this dying man. Jesus inserts three other characters in this parable who were also traveling on the road to Jericho, and the passage tells us that the characters included a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. Now, the priest and the Levite quite clearly would have been Jewish men, and so they were also of the same nationality and the same religion as the man who was lying on the ground. In fact, not only were the priest and the Levite also Jewish, they were also ministers at some level. They would have been ministers who had certain responsibilities, in fact, to give alms and to, and to serve the poor and the needy. And so if you were a Jewish person listening in on this story, being told by Jesus, you might think it was the lucky day for the man lying there de- dying on the ground. Surely the priest and the Levite were going to step up and to minister to this, to this hurting man. 
But in verse 31, we see that's not what happened at all. In fact, the priest and the Levite, they did not stop for this man. They did not speak to this man. They did not serve this man in, in any way. They literally avoided this man and walked around this man. They, they passed by on the other side, and they went on their way, it said. Jesus, he doesn't tell us why they didn't stop. It's quite likely they would have been fearing for their lives. After all, the criminals who had jumped this poor guy could very well have been waiting in the wings to do the very same to them. Or perhaps they could have been concerned about certain religious restrictions about coming into contact with a dead or a defiled body. We're not told why the priest and the Levite did not stop to help. We're just told that they saw the man lying there and they passed by on the other side. But fortunately, there was another man traveling the road that day, this third character, the, the Samaritan. And listen to how things unfold from here, beginning in verse 33. It says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So Jesus here, he's presenting a very clear contrast for us. Whereas the priest and the Levite passed by on the other side, only one of the men, the Samaritan man, responded with compassion. And this word compassion, the Greek word for this, also gives a sense of being deeply moved with, with pity and doing something about it. And very interestingly, this same word is the word most often used in the New Testament to describe the emotional state of Jesus himself during his life and ministry on earth. The Samaritan, he felt compassion and his compassion led him to move toward this man, to serve this man, and to meet this man's needs in a comprehensive fashion. And that's the parable. That's the story told to the lawyer in response to the question, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus turns to the lawyer in verse 36, and he says, he says which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And then the lawyer said, the, the one who showed him mercy, Jesus. And Jesus said to the lawyer, you go and do likewise. And that's the end of the parable. That's the end of the passage. And that's uh, the conclusion of the parable and the passage too. Jesus says to the lawyer in verse 37, he says, go and do likewise. Don't be like the priest and the Levite who passed by. On the other side, be more like the Samaritan who gave this man everything that he needed. And as we think about this, it's quite easy to think that the real message of this parable is that you need to love your neighbors better. You need to give more of yourself. You need to, you need to do more. You need to serve more. You need to love more. You need to love better. And at one level, that is the message of this parable, but, but only in part because you see, as we dig a bit deeper, I think there's more going on here than we might see at first glance. Initially, it seems that this parable is mostly just one more uh, hard lesson, one more hard uh, and difficult teaching from Jesus. 
And it is, to be sure, but it's much more than that, too. In fact, it's easy to think that this parable and all of Christianity really is primarily about trying harder and doing more and obeying rules. But what I'd like to suggest to you here is that, is that through the telling of this story, this, this Jesus is not so much going after this guy's behavior as he's going after this guy's heart. And I'd also like to suggest to you here that through the telling of this story, he's going after your heart and he's going after my heart too. Jesus, he has a deeper motive in telling this parable than simply to make this guy uh, feel like he's not doing enough or to make you and I feel like we're not uh, doing enough. Jesus' motive here is not to make us uh, feel guilty. If passages like this seem to mostly make you feel guilty, I want to tell you that's not the intention of this passage. That's not the intention of Jesus. And so let's take some time to talk about that. Let's explore what Jesus is really going after here. Let's talk about the purpose, the real uh, purpose of this parable that Jesus told. And as we do, we're going to see how Jesus really redefines for us three things. That is who we love, how we love, and why we love. First, Jesus redefines who we love. Now, there's a tendency for us to try to whittle down exactly who we should be helping and who we should be serving around us. The lawyer wanted to put limits on who his neighbor was, and, and quite honestly, we do too at times. But Jesus, he wasn't having any of it. And we know with some certainty that Jesus wasn't having any of it because of the characters that he, that he chose to put into this story. You see, you and I, we will miss much in this parable, parable if we do not understand that the, the Jewish people of the day and the Samaritan people of the day, they, they hated one another. They were bitter enemies. The Jewish people despised the Samaritans. And the Samaritan people, they deplored the Jews. It's easy for us to miss that because this word Samaritan, to us, it's a positive word because of this story. There are organizations, in fact, around the world today doing good things and meeting many pressing needs around the world that have this word Samaritan in their name because of this story that we just read. But to the Jewish people in that time and in that place where this story was told, including this Jewish lawyer, they would have wanted absolutely nothing at all to do with any Samaritan. There's a place in John chapter 8 where there were some Jewish leaders who got very angry at Jesus, and do you know what they did? Do you know what they called Jesus? They, they called him a Samaritan. There was even a common Jewish prayer in the synagogues during that time that asked God to, to withhold forgiveness and grace from the Samaritan people. That's a pretty strong hatred. It's a pretty deep divide between these two groups of people. And yet Jesus picks a Samaritan, a hated people, a hated race to the Jews, and he says to the lawyer, there, there's your neighbor. Jesus is reaching across a massive racial and cultural divide, and he's saying to the lawyer, don't you dare try to limit this. It's easy for us to miss that because this word Samaritan, oh, sorry. You want to know who your neighbor is? Your neighbor is anyone and everyone along the road you're traveling in your life who needs your compassion and your mercy and your attention. Whether you think they deserve it or not, whether you think they brought their troubles on themselves or not, whether you receive anything at all in return from them or not. 
So Jesus, through this parable, he redefines who we're called to love in a, in a very radical way, but he also redefines how we love and how we are called to love. The Samaritan, he really shows us the way. We see him meeting the needs that are right in front of him as he's traveling through life. We see him moving towards people and their needs in practical and tangible ways at great cost and, and risk and inconvenience to himself. He takes care of this hurting man. He gets down off his horse and he puts the man in his place. He gives him transportation. He gives him medical care. He, he meets his physical needs and his material needs. He gives him friendship. He says he took care of him. The Samaritan, he helps this man comprehensively when this man was unable to help himself and when this man was in no position to give uh, anything in return. Friends, I know it can be overwhelming for many of us to think about loving our neighbors and meeting needs around us in this city. How can we possibly make a difference? Where can we even begin? There are so many big issues, so many big problems, so much pain and suffering and brokenness around us. How can, how can I possibly make a dent or a difference in any of it? And if we're not careful, we find ourselves more often than not passing by on the other side of the road passing by real and pressing needs that are right in front of us. Not only that, if we're not careful, we also find ourselves trying to justify ourselves. We find ways to justify the fact that we are doing nothing at all to, to help anyone at all. You might say, I don't have the time to help. I don't have the money to help. I don't have the energy to help. But if we're going to be honest, what's really being said is I don't have the time to help without disrupting my own schedule. I don't have the money to help without taking a bit of a hit myself here. We justify ourselves and our inaction, just like the lawyer was doing. We all do it at some level, and we need to be mindful and cautious about this. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says to a group of people who thought they were Christians, but they were not, he said, when I was hungry, you did not feed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. When I was a stranger, you did not welcome me in. When I was naked, you did not clothe me. When I was sick, you did not visit me. And these people said to Jesus, Lord, when did we see you in those ways and not minister to you? That does not sound right. Surely we would have. And in verse 45, Jesus says, as you did not do to the least of these, you did not do it to me either. Jesus is saying, look around you, look at all the broken people in the world. Look at all the hungry and hurting uh, people. Look at all the oppressed and marginalized people. And Jesus says, I am them. I am all of them. Mother Teresa once said, each and every person out there who you see in need is Jesus in disguise. But let's be clear about something. Jesus is not saying that your acts of mercy and compassion are what will give you eternal life. Rather, he's saying that your acts, and acts of mercy and compassion are signs that you already have it. Jesus was always saying about his disciples, you will know that they are mine by their fruit, by what they do. Think about this. If you have two trees in the middle of June and one of the trees is full of leaves and full of fruit and the other is completely barren, you would, of course, think that the tree with all of the leaves and the fruit is alive 
and the other is not. But the fruit is not what gives that tree its life. Rather, the fruit tells you that the tree is alive. The fruit reveals the life within. And so it is with us. It's not the fact that we serve the hungry and the poor and the needy that saves us. It's the fact that we serve the hungry and the poor and the needy that reveals that that we know Jesus and that we are being changed and compelled by him. We will consistently fall short. We cannot do it all, but we can do something, and we are doing something. Being a neighbor does not require meeting every need around us. That is not possible, but it does require us being thoughtful and, and intentional and becoming one piece of a larger puzzle that is helping to love and to serve those around us in meaningful ways. Our church is doing just that through a variety of channels in our city and beyond by way of our missional communities, by way of our justice and mercy ministry team, by way of various partnerships with local schools and organizations right here in our own neighborhoods. And so let me encourage you this morning in light of all that we've been talking about to to join us, to, to come alongside us in going and doing likewise. It's truly a joy to to be a part of. But here's the thing, none of this this really happens for us by trying harder to follow a rule. It does not come by being told to do more. It does not come by feeling guilty about how little you may be doing to serve those around you. And so how does this work? What is the fuel? What is the motor that drives us forward that we too might love more like the Good Samaritan? Jesus, he redefines not only who we love and how we love, but our last point here, he also redefines why we love. This is our final point, and I think our most critical point for us to consider today, because it has to do with the motives underneath it all, the motives that drive us to love people liberally and to serve them sacrificially like the Samaritan did. First, a couple of words about the priest and the Levite. We didn't talk a whole lot about those two characters other than to uh, say that they really kind of dropped the ball when it came to helping that man who was lying on the road. They saw the man lying on the ground half dead, and each of them, we were told, passed by him on the other side. One of the things we need to understand about these two characters is that they would have been extremely moral, extremely religious men. They were all about religious rules and duties and obligations. And the irony here is that it was their job to minister to people and to meet needs. And yet in this instance, they, they did nothing. They passed by. What Jesus may be showing us here is that trying to be good and moral out of a sense of duty and obligation or, or even guilt can only get you so far. It might lead you to serve some people some of the time. It might make you feel bad about how you're living or how you're not living. But it can't take you very far. It doesn't really have the power to to change your heart or your life. These two highly moral men were put in a position to really uh, go the extra mile and to really love and serve this man who was in desperate need, and, and they didn't do it. They couldn't do it. You see, their rules and their religion only took them so far. Rules and religion will never change your life, but a relationship with Jesus can Let me ask you something this morning, friends. Are any of you here in this moment feeling guilty based on the things we've been talking about? 
Are any of you feeling guilty for your lack of involvement or your lack of generosity and service towards those around you who may be in need? If you're feeling guilty in this moment, please don't, because it won't take you where Jesus wants you to go. Guilt will only take you so far. Jesus was not trying to make the lawyer feel guilty, and he's not trying to make us feel guilty either. Like I said earlier, he's going after uh, not so much our behavior here as he's going after our hearts. And when he goes after your heart, that will drive your behavior in new ways. Jesus wanted the lawyer, and he wants us to see something here. He wants us to consider that one of the real keys to this parable, one of the real keys to, to understanding this parable is, the way in, is, is, is to understand the way in which this Jewish lawyer, this religious expert, was, he was placed inside of this parable that Jesus told. I think Jesus was very intentional in placing this Jewish lawyer, in a sense, inside this parable. After all, Jesus put a Jewish man on the road, beaten and half dead, and he put a Samaritan in the saddle, in a position of power and in a position to help. And do you know what Jesus was really saying to that lawyer by telling the story in this way? He was saying to the lawyer, what if it was you on that road? What if your only hope of survival was a free act of grace from someone who would call you an enemy? What if your only hope of a future was a generous act of mercy from someone who didn't owe you mercy, and in fact, from someone who owed you the opposite? What if your only hope of rescue was a radical act of love from someone who owed you nothing but was willing to give you everything? Would you want that grace? Would you want that mercy? How might that grace change your life? How would an act of grace, as shocking as that, cause you to get up off the ground and to start looking at everyone around you differently? Friends, only as we see that same rescue, that same grace happening to us in the gospel, can we ever start to look at others differently and start moving toward them with compassion. Jesus is going after the lawyer's heart here, and he's going after ours too. He wants us to see that every last one of us is like the guy on the road left for dead until someone showed up to do something about it. The gospel says Jesus came into this world. He came onto our road, moved by compassion, owing us nothing but giving us everything, serving us comprehensively meeting our spiritual needs, our existential needs, our, our relational needs, meeting our needs selflessly and sacrificially at staggering cost to himself. When Jesus says, go and do likewise, he actually demands a love that he knows cannot be demanded out of us. He knows this type of love cannot be created or sustained in response to any law or requirement or, or in response to any feelings of inadequacy or guilt. But he also knows that such a love can indeed begin to be, to be stirred up within us because what the law demands of us, the grace of the gospel can indeed begin to create within us as we see Jesus as our true and ultimate Good Samaritan. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, thank you for this challenging passage. Thank you for uh, this encouraging passage. God, would you do a work in our hearts this morning in light of this passage that only you can do? Would you stir our, our hearts to compassion and to action? God, would we not be a people who pass by on the other side of the road? Rather, would we be willing to, to move toward people and to, to meet their needs in practical and tangible ways as a response to who you are and to what you've done? Thank you, Jesus, that you would not leave us to ourselves beaten down by sin, lying on the road half dead, but you would come to us and for us to meet our needs comprehensively when we had nothing to offer you in return. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.